0: Yes, good planets are hard to find. Hi, Case Good listeners. It's every other Sunday again, and you're listening to Sustainability Now, a biweekly Case Good radio show focused on environment, sustainability, and social justice in the Monterey Bay region, California, and the world. I'm your host, Ronnie Lipschitz. We live in a world of landscapes, whether they are in the middle of cities or out in the wilderness. And virtually all of these landscapes have been transformed by human action, whether in ancient times or just last week. We're now in the midst of what many scholars and pundits call the Anthropocene, and we're anticipating major major impacts and disasters as a result of human-caused climate change. Yet few of us experience climate change as anything more than an abstraction, even in the midst of floods and hurricanes. Climate change is by and large experienced in local terms, and not as vast atmospheric masses and oceanic rivers in motion, or secular global temperature changes over decades or even the disappearance of familiar species, such as birds and insects. So what does it mean to experience climate change locally, in local terms? My guest today, I hope, will answer some of those questions. He's Andrew Matthews, Chair and Associate Professor of Anthropology at UC Santa Cruz. He's just published Trees Are Shapeshifters, How Cultivation, Climate Change, and Disaster Create Landscapes. A closely documented study of trees and people in central Italy and how they make sense of social and environmental change around them. Andrew Matthews, welcome to Sustainability Now. Uh, It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I read your book with great interest and um, found some echoes of stuff that I wrote 25 years ago in the book. So I was pleased on the one hand. And uh, I, uh, anyway. Let's just, let's just go on, okay? So perhaps the best way to, to begin is to have you give a brief summary of the book and how you decided to do research in central Italy around Pisa, Lucia? Luca. It Luca and Mont, Mont, Mont Pisano.
1: Yes, that's Monte Pisano. Monte Pisano, okay. Yes. Uh, <clears throat> great question. Uh, well,. Um, I partly grew up in Italy, and I knew I wanted to go back there to learn about it with a whole new set of eyes, which is one thing is to grow up in a place where your elders and neighbors tell you things, and another thing is to study it for yourself and learn again. Uh, But uh, I was interested in Italian landscape because, like most Mediterranean landscapes, this is a place where people have been cultivating, shaping the landscape, transforming it for thousands of years. And I was interested in seeing what, what does it feel like to experience climate change in a place when you also have to remember all of this history of cultivation and landscape care, uh, disasters in the past that have maybe reshaped uh, ecosystems, reshaped human cultivation systems. And sort of people there have this constant balance between the new ideas about climate change but the older ideas about what it's like to live in a landscape where people used to be uh, sort of peasant smallholders, and now they're all working in factories, and the landscape is falling into ruin.
0: Oh, well, you're calling, the book is titled
1: Trees Are Shapeshifters. You know, why did you choose that title? Ah, thank you so much. Well, first of all, because trees are shapeshifters, but you have to sort of uh, attune yourself to the capacity of trees and plants to change form, uh, right? Because uh, they grow very slowly, but they respond to things like uh, having branches cut off, being logged, uh, fire and disease uh, and you know once you begin to appreciate the capacity of trees and plants to respond to the world it just life becomes a lot more interesting um, I could give examples of the shape-shifting capacities of trees on the UC Santa Cruz campus right yeah that
0: would be that would be interesting since our listeners presumably you know, know about redwoods right yeah so redwoods are champion shapeshifters right So um, many
1: of you have probably been up in the woods, uh, different parts of of pretty much anywhere in Santa Cruz County where we have redwoods. They were all logged in the late 19th, early 20th century. And then, you know, they were cut off. They were just stumps. Often they burned the slash afterwards. The fires kind of left charcoal on all the stumps. And then this wonderful ecological sort of accident, nobody was planning for it, although presumably lots of people knew about it in some way, they re-sprouted from the stumps. And all of those redwood trees that you see when you walk in the woods around here re-sprouted from the stumps of trees that were logged uh, during this crazy frontier period in the late 19th, early 20th century. And once your eyes get kind of clued in on that, all of a sudden you realize that these trees are changing shape all the time. And they can do something kind of miraculous. They can grow new branches. And unfortunately, if someone cuts my arm off, I cannot
0: grow a new one, but a tree can, which is quite a trick. Yeah, well that's how you get fairy circles, right? Because of the the sprouting of trees around the original stump. That's right. The fairy rings. Fairy uh, rings, yeah. Uh, yes, same thing. And often you can see on
1: some of the stumps the kind of the the cuts where people built a a platform so they could go up there and, you know, sew the tree down. So you can see the physical traces of that frontier period in front of your eyes everywhere.
0: Yeah, I mean in a way Henry Cowell is kind of misleading Henry Cowell part because there are uh original redwoods there right i don't think i don't know if it it was logged or not but one goes there and gets the impression that these are you know these have been there forever and the same thing is true when students come to visit the campus you know they have no sense that that 100 years ago 120 years ago all of this place was was clear-cut it's 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 surprising they're surprised when they hear it um well, in the book, you argue that caring for tree form persuades humans to also care about landscape form, giving rise to a distinctive kind of politics. I'm kind of anticipating here some of our later discussion, but, but you know, we, we certainly see politics of, around trees in the United States, but that idea of, of sort of original primordial forest, right, permeates the way that, that our politics of trees proceeds. What's the difference between between the United States and Italy? That's
1: such a great question. So, you know, there's many complexities, but a very good place to start is just that when they're uh, in Italy, and I would say in the Mediterranean more broadly, just people are aware that this is a landscape that has been cared for by human beings kind of sense forever, you could say. That's how people understand it. And so whenever there is a forest fire or a landslide or a flood, the immediate response is people need to take more care. In other words, humans need to do something in the landscape to make it safer, to restore it, to take care of it. And again, simplifying greatly, but the, in, in the United States and North America, the immediate assumption is oh, people need to get out of the landscape so that nature can do its thing. Right, So putting people in versus taking people out, these are very different responses. And in some ways, I think Italy is a harbinger for where we're going to be at in North America also because the landscapes that we live in North America are so profoundly transformed by human action that we can't imagine that just removing ourselves from the landscape is possible. So we're having to live now with the consequences of all the centuries of sort of land care and land abandonment and landscape abuse that we've done. and
0: uh, You know, as I'm thinking about, it, the closest parallel is probably New England. But in New England, you have all, had all of these abandoned farms going back to forest, right? I mean, there are similarities there. But, but I don't know if, if you see the same kind of politics about New England forests that you s- describe in your book uh, and if you don't have an answer to that, that's fine. It's just an observation. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really good question, and I actually worked as a forester in New England. So Yeah, tell
1: us about that, too. Somewhere in my mind, well, I'll just... Uh, New England is sort of like Italy, which in the sense that when you walk through forest, you find all these stone walls and cellar right. holes, and you get a sense that this was an incredibly heavily humanized landscape. Uh, Vermont, where I worked, you know, I don't have the numbers, but early in the 19th century, it was about... Eighty-five or ninety percent fields and pastures, and now it's just the opposite. It's about ninety percent forest. So that gives you a sense for how incredibly transformed the world is there. Um, I would say one thing that is different in Italy from New England, and which actually resonates with California, is that um, it's a very unstable landscape. So, like coastal California, there recently uplifted marine sediments through tectonic action, basically sands and muds and shales and <laughs> and the like mm-hmm. and when forests are damaged or removed you can get landslides we also have earthquakes so landscape stability in italy is a directly practical question uh, there was uh, landslides in east outside naples like yesterday yeah right and yeah. the first thing people said is well why did they cut the trees down and why didn't they fix the drainage so people are they're saying we need to take care of the landscape because it's unstable we have to get involved in it and that's a uh, new england's
0: pretty gentle place and we don't have that particular problem there yeah um how did you i mean what you you mentioned that you uh were trained as a forester i thought that was kind of interesting how tell us about that
1: yeah actually the forester thing connects back to italy so when I you know, was an undergraduate, I was a physics major, I didn't know what I was going to do. So was I. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, physics majors, they end up everywhere. Um, so, you know, after college, I was working in Italy, working as an agricultural laborer, and I was um, huh. impressed and fascinated by the kind of the practical ecological knowledge of this generation of peasant farmers who are already quite elderly, but were still around, they were doing their thing. And I okay, how can I learn about landscapes in something like the way that they understand trees and soils and plants? So I went back to school to do to study forestry, and that's how I got into it. It started with this idea that I would you know learn how to take care of forests and come back to Italy. but I made a long detour by way of Mexico, but this this project is my return to Italy and
0: hmm. um, yeah I mean one of the one of the things that turns up in the book is this local knowledge of the Italian peasants, yes. the peasantry, which has died out, right? And, um, of course, there's a lot of interest, especially in the academy, about indigenous and local knowledge. Um, and, and later on in the book, you contrast that, that kind of applied practical experience with scientific forestry. And maybe you can, you know, compare the two. I mean, which is, uh, which is better I mean that's probably not the right term, but uh, which works better? Yeah,
1: so that's a really great question, and you know, people have been asking that question for the last two hundred years, and we're not done asking it. But I will give you some sort of some things I've learned along the way. So, you know, the sci- I was trained as a scientific forester. Foresters mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. tall, straight trees that right, you cut yeah. up into beams and you know planks, basically. Uh, they can build cathedrals or ships out of the kinds of timbers that uh, foresters know how to grow. And, you know, peasants were interested in a lot of other things. They were interested right. in uh, fruit trees, trees that had horizontal branches. They were interested in firewood. They were interested in poles. They were interested in the fact that trees would stabilize canal banks. They would build terraces for them. So they were interested in many more things about trees than scientific foresters were. And they also developed a host of detailed, practical, place-based forms of knowledge which more often don't translate to other places. Right, yeah, yeah. And I think it's the translatability of sort of scientific forestry which is on the one hand allows you to go to a new landscape and think you know what you're doing, but on the other hand might lead you badly astray
0: because you may well not know what you're doing. Not not to drop into lecture mode, but but I did. You know, this is now thirty years ago, when um, I wrote a, a book chapter on what was then called Redwood Summer. I don't know if you were around. This was a this was a campaign modeled on Freedom Summer that took place up in Northern California and and up the Pacific Coast, you know, trying to to protect the redwoods. And what was really sort of interesting was thinking about how how scientific forestry or industrial forestry, as it was taught, right, was very much about productivity, whereas you might say ecological forestry, which was starting to become, you know, which was being taught more and more in the universities, looked at biodiversity and, and ecosystem conservation, and the two were very much in, you know, direct conflict, and to some degree it seems like it's still the case, although the the scientific foresters are gradually dying out, right? Because I don't know if that gets taught in universities anymore, that kind of industrial-focused forestry. Um, but I could be wrong about that. Well, we still have, uh, around the world, we have sort
1: of plantation forestry yeah, and no. industrial forestry. So I think it's more the case that it's retreated from the what we call the wilder parts of the landscape. Mm-hmm. But there are industrial plantations are unfortunately, expanding in, in many parts of the world.
0: You're listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Dr. Andrew Matthews, a Professor of Anthropology at UC Santa Cruz and Chair of the Department. And we're talking about his recently published book, Trees Are Shapeshifters. And we're sort of roaming back and forth amongst Italy and California and New England, and I guess the rest of the world where plantation forestry is becoming um sort of the it's it's also becoming a a a a way to sequester carbon for a certain period of time right i mean that's but you know we can come back to that it's it's uh not really part of of the conversation well in your book your focus is on chestnut trees they're broad decline due to disease and they're displaced by other tree uh species so you know i'm intrigued by the idea of of chestnuts as a As a food source, maybe talk tell us about that yes, so um and and i I more or less stumbled
1: across this the chestnut in this landscape where I was working, which is the best kind of research when you come across it by accident, and so chestnut trees uh were the main source of carbohydrate food for people in Italy who are in the middle hills, I would say, sort of between say two hundred and eight or nine hundred meters in elevation mm-hmm. and uh, it was part of this amazingly productive and complex system that linked chestnut trees with uh, sheep and goats grazing in the woods mm-hmm. and they provided fuel they provided the animals provided you know milk and cheese and butter and so on and so it was a very integrated human animal plant system um, It was greatly damaged in the late nineteenth century by diseases that were brought actually from East Asia, probably from China, with uh, uh, chestnut varieties were introduced from China, first to North America and then to the, to Europe. And uh, they gradually sort of eliminated big parts of, ch- of the uh, chestnut forest from the lower elevations. And all of this is happening at a time when the Italian government, as many other governments, was really interested in industrial agriculture and industrialization. So industrial agriculture in Italy meant wheat. So wheat cultivation was what governments cared about. And they saw chestnut cultivation as backward, uh, insufficient, inadequate, uh, lacking in nutrition. They had all kinds of uh, rude uh, stereotypes about people who lived off chestnut, uh, you know, as a staple. And So they didn't really care too much about the damage caused by the disease. And when chestnut cultivation went away, they just said, well, that's progress for you. And again, there was a second disease that came through in the late 30s, also from uh, sort of introduced from uh, East Asian chestnut varieties. And again, that seemed to be the final uh, death knell of the population. Um, So chestnut cultivation is interesting because they're grafted trees which means you combine a cultivated variety with a wild rootstock and uh... they can live for centuries but only if people keep on taking care of them so in many places in the landscape you'll have cultivated chestnut trees that are three four five six hundred years old that uh... have required more or less continual human care over these many centuries if someone doesn't come by every decade or so and Kind of cut off the shoots that emerge from the, what we call the lower part, the rootstock, the, it'll fall apart. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it's a very inspiring example in a world where people do everything in the short term. Of, in some places at some times, humans manage to keep things going for decades and centuries. It's a good example for us. And, you know, in North America, the oldest old growth trees are sort of. Trees which appear not to have much connection with humans, and in the Mediterranean, uh, chestnuts aren't necessarily the oldest trees, but they're getting up there. And the, those are trees which, if you find them anywhere, they're there because humans cared about them and planted them and have continued to care for them.
0: But given the two diseases that that you know ran through the the chestnut groves, why are there still surviving trees? Um.
1: Luck is one factor, but elevation is another, right? The the diseases that do the most damage are happier at lower elevations. So the places where the chestnut has survived is sort of higher up where it's cooler. And in fact, now with climate change, of course, the disease Uh, is pushing uphill.
0: Huh. Huh. That's interesting.
1: Uh, Actually, the other part that I was forgetting, which is that... um, the second disease is chestnut canker. This is the disease that r- wiped out the North American chestnut in the mm-hmm. early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And so this is like the 1910s or so that it arrives in Pennsylvania and it's a disaster and there are governmental commissions and, of course, there's nothing they can do. And this species, which formerly was a huge component of eastern forest, just basically disappeared within, the, within a period of 20 years or so. And then that same disease arrived in Italy and in the Mediterranean in the late 1930s. And people had been watching North America, and they thought, this is the end of the world. The same exact thing that happened in Pennsylvania or, or, or Connecticut is going to happen here. And at first, that seemed to be what was happening. The trees were dying in the space of a year or two, and that was it. But then this sort of ecological miracle happened, which is that the chestnut canker itself acquired a disease which slowed it down. And that largely halted it, and that's why chestnut in Mediterranean didn't disappear.
0: Huh. That's interesting. Of course, the chestnuts in North America weren't cultivated, right? Or were Uh, they? I mean, you know, this is something that... that, nobody would know about you know as as food well i think that indigenous people and other people in north
1: america did eat chestnuts Mm -hmm. and it seems likely they didn't graft them so they didn't have that kind of more intense form of cultivation but it's quite likely that there was some landscape care practices which would have favored a species that produced food both for humans and for wildlife right yeah it's not well understood to my knowledge but i'm I would say that, given what we know about indigenous land care practices, I would be
0: astonished if they were not observing and sort of caring for these uh, these species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you did you did meet up with some of these these uh, Italian peasants, right? I mean, they were quite old, according to what you wrote in the book. And um, one of the things I remember now, thirty years ago, hearing. Someone it might have been Margaret Fitzsimmons or, or um, someone else talk about the many meanings of the forest. you know, that for a forester, it's, and, and it's lumber. For uh, someone who uh, is interested in recreation, you know it's the outdoors. Um, and I'm curious, was there, did you get a sense from these peasants of the meaning, meanings, cultural meanings that were imputed to these, these chestnut groves? um was and and I asked this question right because and it's something that that I've talked about on previous shows right is about the that we tend to look at nature in terms of value in terms of particularly economic value right as opposed to cultural value or or cultural meaning because I don't like you know the idea of value and I'm I'm wondering did you get from the peasants these these old peasants any ideas of how they you know, sort of their social relationship to the forest. That's a really good question. So, um, the,
1: they're very interested in working with, uh, in the chestnut trees, but also olive trees. So there's this practical working with plants is just fascinating to them. They're just they're committed to keeping them going, right? So there's a sense that uh, a sense of obligation to keep it going, a <laughs> sense of responsibility. Also very intensely judgmental about their neighbors who don't take trees, take care of trees in just the way that they would. So, um, you know, if if you ever wondered what, you know, you know, three old farmers are doing sitting at a cafe somewhere in Italy, they're probably gossiping about their neighbors' cultivation practices and basically arguing that the way they do it is better. Right. So but it's practical, it's aesthetic, and there's a sense of obligation. There's also judgment, all of those things.
0: It's a lot like raising children, I guess, in that respect. Right. There are dozens of ways, and no one can agree on what is the best. But in the case of trees, your neighbors walk by and look at your trees and say, oh, (laughs) Andrew doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, one of the things you talked about uh, that really struck me is this idea of forest cleaning, the, the raking up of leaves and litter to reduce the risk of fire, make compost, the coppicing of trees. And shoots, probably should say what that means, yep. to control tree shape and growth. And the system of terraces and drainage to direct water and avoid mudslides. And I mean, all of this resonates with debates here in California about overgrown forests. And so how did this system of, of forest care develop? Yeah, so over, I would say since the
1: Roman times, since the Middle Ages, this has been a landscape that is just full of people. Right, requiring right, yeah. continual work to keep yeah. it going. And as human populations increase in the Middle Ages, that becomes even more the case. So the kinds of things people did, uh, every I would say every growing thing had a purpose and someone who's responsible for keeping it going. So firewood would be cut, and coppicing is the way they would cut firewood. Uh, this takes advantage of this capacity of trees to re-sprout from the stump. So you might get like a dozen or 15 shoots and then gradually that's reduced to four or five and after 15 years you come back and you cut it again and so firewood in all across Europe has been produced for many many centuries off the same stumps this is called Mm -hmm. coppicing Mm -hmm. so that's one of the ways in which people sort of continually worked with trees uh to you know get things they needed sometimes firewood sometimes poles litter raking is just another aspect of this so um it's well known for Central Europe, not well known for Italy, but it turns out to be ubiquitous. So basically, people would go out in the woods. They would pick up certainly every scrap of firewood on the ground. But another practice was to rake up the leaf litter either with these sort of wooden claws. They would just rake it up, put it in baskets uh, or in bundles, and carry it down to the farm. They would uh, mix that with uh, animal manure from their, their the stables, from the stalls. They would compost it, and then that was their source of fertilizer. So in that world, forests and agriculture were tightly linked. Forests were a source of nutrients. And you really couldn't keep olive cultivation going without the support of sheep, goats, and forests and litter raking. And at least for the generation that I talk to, you know, really quite elderly people now in their 70s, 80s, even 90s, most of that work was done by women and children. Mm -hmm. it's hard to say what it was like a hundred or two hundred years ago but it's quite likely that that was also the case then so imagine a world in which uh, the forest looked really different from here where literally every scrap of vegetable material that fell on the forest floor was gathered and had a purpose and someone who's responsible for it and that produced a landscape which was very much less likely to burn because as my informants as the people i talked to told me they said how could it burn? If a flame started, someone would put it out and it had nowhere to go. There was nothing to burn. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very different from now. And this is much more similar to what we have here in Santa Cruz in California, where the forest is full of dry vegetation. And as we know, uh, we can have you know, catastrophic fires.
0: Yeah. You are listening to Sustainability Now. I'm Ronnie Lipschitz, and my guest today is Professor Andrew Matthews. Uh, who is in the anthropo- Anthropology Department at UC Santa Cruz, and we're talking about his newly published book, Trees Are Shapeshifters. Uh, and we were just uh, talking about cleaning the forest floor, which, of course, is a topic that comes up repeatedly uh, in California uh, between those who argue that we need to you know, tidy up the forest so that forest fires aren't intense, and those who argue for leaving it as it is in the interest of uh, ecosystemic processes, but um, let's go. Let's go on. Right. So, so in the 19th century, industrialization and state building appear, right, and in, in the modern sense, and um, you bring in in the book not just industrialization, but but political economy, as well, a changing political economy as critical factors and forces. You know transforming this landscape right and what people were doing in the landscape so how did that you know what did this do to chestnut cultivation and and you know what did how did people respond to it
1: yeah so uh people had been leaving the mountains in italy already since the mid-19th century though the i would say the peak population uh, and industry in mountains really right across the mediterranean mediterranean world was sometime like in the 1870s 1880s 1890s so at that time in in rural places there was lots of industry so something that happens the 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 system shifts in in the late 19th century and all of that rural industry kind of goes away and it gets concentrated down in the valleys, in large cities. So um, this is really hard for us to imagine, right? We think of the mountains as being kind of remote, close to nature. And yet at that time, uh, for much of the last 1500, uh, 1,500 years, mountains and middle hills were where industry was because there was water power. You yeah. could get work done. Mm-hmm. So lots, imagine lots of small factories, you know, a shoe factory, a small little shoemaker, a paper mill, these kinds of things. They just all go away. And people have to leave, and they they move down to big cities. They move to Pisa. They move to Milan. They move to Brazil. They move to New York, right? That's the the where people begin to leave uh, cultivation and enter the industrial labor force. Uh, in Italy, it really takes hold after World War Two, uh, huh, and okay. in a, in a period of ten or maybe that's the last blow of that system when um, uh, Italy begins to have very rapid industrialization. In the Monte Pisano, you know, people go and get works making scooters. Uh, you know the, the, the Vespas. Vespas, yes. yes. There was a Vespa factory like 15 miles away, uh-huh. and that was a great job. Uh-huh. And uh, people left and did that, and very, very rapidly. And then all of this landscape gets abandoned. The forest grows very rapidly. People no longer need it for, for fuel, no longer doing litter raking. And within 15 or 20 years, you begin to have very large and dangerous wildfires.
0: I mean, it's very characteristic, right, of, of rural and agri- agricultural areas around the world that um, when particularly state and, and capital, you know, seek to expand, right, people uh, living, living in the more remote places find that they, they can no longer make a living right and they migrate to cities i mean it's 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 happened here it's happened you know it's everywhere everywhere and and what's left behind and of course in the mountains i suppose it's much more difficult to to come up with large scale in, industrial replacements for what's been going on there because the landscape is so variegated um uh so um Let's turn to climate change, because we've been having shows on climate change. Everybody's been sort of going nuts because of the conference in Egypt, which was the topic of our last show. Um, The basic argument that you make, as I understand it, is that climate change, as we sort of generally talk about, is too abstract and distanced to motivate people to action. And that scientific models and predictions seek precision in an area of social life that is characterized by messiness. And did I get that right?
1: Yes, you put it very well. Um, I mean, climate is a strange term, right? Climate really is an average of weather over some period of time and over some area. So we could say Santa Cruz has climate if we mean, well, over a period of 10 or 20 or 30 years, these are the temperatures, this is the rainfall, this is kind of what we might expect. So it's a mathematical construct in the way that scientists use it. And uh Like mathematical constructs uh like gross national product, it's hard to get excited about it. so when was the last time you know you felt really deeply personally intimately concerned with the United States gross national product and it's not really until someone tells you that you know you, the budget of your employer is being cut or something that's when you, you that's really when the feel it rubber yeah, hits the road yeah. and climate change is kind of like that it's like you know it's only when climate change causes. A sort of environmental or social consequences uh, in the world as you experience it that you really begin to get concerned uh, and actually, Santa Cruz is a great example you know until we had the lightning complex CCU fire, I feel like uh, lots of people felt climate change was somewhat more abstract than uh, after the fire. I noticed people becoming including myself being much more passionately concerned about it uh, in Italy. The analog for that would be. Not actually so much fires, although they're a problem too, but it's floods and landslides. So people initially feel really concerned about sort of floods and landslides and also with droughts. And those are the ways, those are the experiences of life which make them care about climate change and demand that something be done about it.
0: Yeah, okay, sorry, I was just... um, And and then, you know, what would have... Are there vernacular models of of weather and climate? I, I mean, you know, because, you know, again, as you talk about this, right, I mean the CZU complex fire was an immediate event in those of us, you know, living here, um, and much more so people living living in the mountains, right? Um and the the sort of the models, right, seek to draw curves and lines which again uh are, are argued to have certain precision even though they're you know they don't give predictability for spe- specific places right and yet there's a sense of this is how we control this right by understanding the the uh, the statistics the 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 lines and the curves and yet the local sort of manifestation is is quite different so, i mean i'm talking a lot here but this this idea are there vernacular models i mean yes. do you think
1: Yes, so that's a vernacular, you know, just, it's a word for, you know, ordinary people's ways of talking about climate, right? And of course, and this surprises my students, but um, we are all climate experts. Sure. Because uh, when we go outside and we say, this is odd, it's unusually rainy today. We have a model in our head of what an ordinary kind of day should be, and we decide whether today is weird or normal or interesting or whatever. So that's what you might call a vernacular popular model of climate. So one of the problems with climate change policy, right, is that the scientific version of climate is only one kind of climate. There's also a more popular version of climate. And I think scientists and policymakers don't realize that there's more than one version of climate out there. And therefore, uh, they see their task as one of persuading everyone to see it their way when really it's a case of collaborating across many different ways of thinking about climate.
0: In a way, just you know, parenthetically, it's, it's almost a reflection of the crisis of, you might call it a crisis of science, right? That, that uh, the, the control over phenomena, physical phenomena that was promised or that seemed to emerge out of the technologies of the mid-20th century, right, have not materialized to a significant degree i mean the big technologies right You think of nu- nuclear power or even weather modification um, and and so there's a, you know there's this whole idea of scientific skepticism is not just simply i don't believe but it's also skepticism about uh, just how predictable things might be you know that and and again right the the key here is, is to try and predict the future um, uh, economists try to do that too; they're not t- so good at it. But, but again, it's sort of that that reflection of that: if we can only draw these lines and predict the future, we can also control it.
1: Yeah, actually, this is a really nice example because, uh, you know, one of the effects of the climate crisis is that we think intensely about climate change, but we actually also have to think about other environmental disasters because they're sort of. In particular, places equally important, or at least worthy of thinking about, and really nice example of what happens when you get focused on one set of numbers to the detriment of the world, is um, you know uh, logging off the redwoods in Santa Cruz in the 1890s. You know there was a boom time economy, and people said, "Wow, we're going to get rich quickly. Let's just cut them down." And, Measuring trees in terms of board feet made sense for that brief period, mm-hmm. and we're living in the ruins of that experiment, right? Um, in in Italy, in the 1950s, people thought chestnut was going to disappear, and they logged those trees and turned them into tannin for making you know fancy handbags and shoes. So um, whenever we're faced with an environmental crisis, we tend to get kind of f- overly focused on that crisis and the solutions to it, and understanding more of the history of our landscape gives us a little bit of a distance on it. So, you know, the next time someone says, let's uh, dedicate all forests to one purpose, you might be able to say, well, last time we tried that in Santa Cruz in 1890, it didn't work out so well. And so that monomaniacal focus on one problem and one purpose uh, needs to be tempered by understanding
0: sort of examples from the past that kind of teach us to be a little bit more skeptical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the sections of your book is headed, is, is entitled Ecological Modeling as Empirical Storytelling. And, you know, that's a really interesting sort of what claim argument heading. And I'm I'm wondering if you could tell us a story about what that means.
1: Sure. Well,
0: I might get a little technical here, and
1: you'll have to flag me down if I go okay, there. I'll do but that. Um, you know, um, so when we see climate models, we see what look like very sort of confident predictions. But climate models and ecological models in general always rely upon you know simplifications. Right? right? Yeah. You have to decide which aspects of this very complex ecosystem are to be measured, which processes are going to be modeled, and then you extrapolate forward. So. You know, it's not so much that you're predicting in the sort of straightforward this happens, therefore that happens. It's much more the case that you set out your assumptions and then you extrapolate them forward. So think of that as being a kind of, uh, a, it is a kind of storytelling, but it's empirical because you have to be responsible. You have to measure things. You have to figure out whether you're going to count the number of trees or measure uh, how quickly they, they're, they're respiring and so on. So it is absolutely empirical but it also requires you to extrapolate and it becomes
0: uh, you know principled estimation and in some ways guesswork. Bruno Latour wrote about this in his book Laboratory Life back in the late 1970s about how scientists have to make judgments and how they work with black boxes, things that produce outputs but which they you know they don't know exactly what's going on inside of it. So uh, the whole sort of enterprise Right, is is not just about assumptions, it's also about judgments, experience and and peer pressure. I mean that's what peer review is is basically about, right? So so a process that's presented as very meticulous and data driven is actually also so a social process and quite messy. And um but if you confront from experience, I know if you confront scientists with this kind of proposition, they often get very um alarmed and huffy right because they think you're saying well you know uh it's not science it's it's something else and you're listening to sustainability now i'm ronnie lipschitz and my guest today is professor andrew matthews of the ucsc anthropology department and we're we've been talking about trees and particularly about his recently published book trees are shapeshifters well you're an anthropologist And anthropologists focus on local life, nature, and culture. And my experience is they find it difficult to generalize from their specific case studies. And so I'm wondering if you can generalize, you know, broadly speaking. I mean, we have been talking about California and other parts of the world. But what can you extract from your research, particularly around um, this idea of citizen opposition, you know, that might be... uh, something that you could, you know, generalize to other parts of the world. I mean, you you sort of present the struggles over the Tuscan forests as, um, you know, a particular uh, example of forest politics. But what does it have, you know, what insights can it shed on forest politics elsewhere?
1: Yeah, so um, I would, I think that, Anthropologists, we went through a period when we basically always said, you know, m- my, my place, my local place is different from every other place to some degree. But I think that um, I would like us, and I think many of us do think that we can, our, the stories that we learn from paying attention to, you know, peasants or indigenous people or scientists in laboratories. You know, they can travel. They can inspire you to understand the world differently in other places, too. Uh, and I think that the example that I give from Italy is really how people uh, draw on their experience of, you know, landscape abandonment from... They saw what happened when, you know, people went to the cities. They saw the effects of pollution when when uh, uh, tannin factories polluted the air. And that led them to sort of push back against it and to say, no, we don't want it, right? So people can draw upon their landscape to inspire a kind of environmental politics which is attentive to their particular needs. And I think that's a story that travels. Uh, I hope it does, right? Um I see a lot of more specific similarities, actually, between California and Italy to do with sort of forests and geology and soils, but that's another matter. But I think that, you know, the kind of storytelling that anthropologists engage in can provide us examples that can inspire us to do things differently in other places, too.
0: But, I mean, you see this, this, this example as being uh, about politics, right, about forest politics. It's not, I mean, we always look at these things in terms of of production right and political economy and value and yet they're political and so my question is if do you regard the political struggle going on over these forests uh uh, who is who is winning let me put it that way who is winning and what can you what can you provide any advice to to these sorts of you know movements in other places that's really what i wanted to try and get at yes i would say that
1: the landscapes you live in are full of stories and full of history, and they're a resource for dealing with contemporary politics. Um, in lots of parts of the world, actually specifically with relation to climate change, uh, this the promise of governments and states around the world of how are we going to deal with climate change, one of the big parts of it is, is has been, yes, we're going to get energy from biomass by cutting down forests and burning them and getting electricity from that, right? And there are lots of things wrong with that. Uh, Part of that is that it's kind of crazy when you hitch the world energy system just to forests and therefore don't deal with where energy is coming from, which is fossil fuels that you're pulling out of the ground. So that's you're hitching a small part of the the energy system to forests and then destroying forests. So we can draw upon our daily life, the world that surrounds us, uh, to inspire our own political demands and our own resistances to basically bad ideas that are coming down the turnpike a uh, specific example I think would be in Santa Cruz you know we are so lucky that redwoods are holding those hillsides together because if they weren't we would have a lot more landslides so we should be grateful to them and we should be very skeptical about uh, sort of projects that say biomass energy is going to be the most important thing to do
0: with forests well redwoods of course are not don't, don't provide the kind of uh, uh, growth Yes. right that provides that sort of the ability to, to to harvest selectively for for forests. I mean, the the Tuscan the idea here is behind the the biomass projects in in the Italian mountains, right? Is that these are what, what's the right word? These are sort of classical trees, right? They don't grow tall and straight; they grow all over the place, right? And and there's this this notion that there's some kind of surplus growth in these forests, right? And if they're carefully harvested you can keep on growing, and of course, the the um, it's renewable, right? I mean, that's the, no, no, it's zero emission, that's the term, yes. right? Yes. Is that you sequester the carbon in the trees, you cut off the branches, the branches grow back, sucking carbon out of the air, and so there's this kind of net zero proposition, right? Which is a, you know, which you can't really talk about redwoods in that way, because nobody is is cutting them down for, you can't coppice them because they're so tall. Well, I think
1: we're lucky that we're not coppicing them, but you actually could because weirdly they do, and that's exactly what happened here when we had logging in the nineteenth century. The only reason we have redwoods now is they coppiced; they grew back from the stump. Uh, luckily, no one's proposing, as far as I know, to convert redwood forests to biomass to wood chips. But 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 biomass projects are big in uh, further inland in California. Uh, for much the same sets of reasons, right? Hmm. It's supposed to be carbon-neutral energy. It's supposed to deal with diseased forests where you want to eliminate trees. Right, yeah. And, um, you know, it's potentially very problematic. Let's leave it with the, you know... uh, In Italy, it turns out that you can't produce enough wood chips to power the energy system, so they're busy importing uh, wood chips from Eastern Europe and probably from the Ukraine, too. Uh, So you have timber mafias uh, importing wood chips uh, uh, with all kinds of sort of
0: violence and corruption. Yeah, that's a kind of a bizarre outcome, right? That that you argue on the basis of these abstract calculations that there is enough to power these projects, and then you discover that, no, it doesn't work that way, and we have to go somewhere else, somewhere else to get it. Oh, the last thing that I that I have here on my on my list is this idea of uh, that the political struggle is is underway in these forests between those who regard forests as underutilized underutilized resources and those who take cultural positions on them. You, we talked about that. I mean, who are these culturalists? I thought that was a sort of an interesting term. Um, do you remember it? You <laughs> I'm, well, I so. One thing, actually,
1: this is a very Italian story, but I think it might have some kind of echo with this, which yeah. is that um, uh, there's sort of an aesthetic attraction to holding the landscape fixed, uh, making it beautiful, and the sort of cultural tourist uh, institutions in Italy have basically made it very hard to continue working in the landscape. So rural people find this very threatening. So it's something like this. It goes, well, you mustn't touch that tree because it's beautiful. And rural people say... It's beautiful because my grandfather took care of it, and my father took care of it, and I proposed to take care of it also. So there is kind of culture as a set of practices and culture as a set of ideas about holding things fixed. And, and that, of course, is very different from the United States. Um, I think probably we should hang on to culture as a set of practices as well as ideas, and that, that, that might make it work better.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, in the United States, it's—I mean—it's this idea of the primeval, the primordial forest, right—the forest before, before the arrival of Europeans—that um, that, that these were a, a place that were in in balance, um, you know, and and self-regenerating, although there was a lot of care going into many of them, right. You know, does is that this the, the sense of, of what goes on in, in Italy? Is is people are not looking at landscapes in terms of originary conditions, I suppose, since that's thousands of years in the past.
1: Yes, that's right. And that's I would say that's the big difference and maybe the big lesson that Italy has to offer us. It's just that um, you know in Italy it's basically very difficult, or I wouldn't say impossible, but very difficult ever to say This is pure nature, don't touch it because human beings should stay out. And, you know, of course, uh, there are places that just people should uh, retreat from and not do things in. But nevertheless, we're now in a world that is so profoundly transformed by human action that even withdrawing is a form of human action. So, you know, we need to be involved in and care for landscapes. Uh, Certainly, indigenous folks in California have been caring for their landscapes forever. And of course, they want to do more of that. And that's something that is, you know, admirable and we should both uh, respect and support and learn from. Uh, And I think that that kind of uh, the idea that humans are responsible for and are able to, if they pay attention, are respectful enough to uh, make landscapes kind of work better is something we're just going to have to be living with. Because uh, with climate change and with disease epidemics and the like, you know, there's no option.
0: Well, we're at the end of the show, and I want to thank you, Andrew, for that you know, wonderful conversation and for being my guest on Sustainability Now. Thank you. It's just been a great pleasure, and I've really enjoyed your questions, and I'll be thinking about them uh, as I go out. So the title of the book is Trees Are Shapeshifters, How Cultivation, Climate Change, and Disaster Create Landscapes, and it's published this year by Yale University Press. If you'd like to listen to previous shows, you can find them at ksquid.org slash sustainability now as well as spotify google podcasts and pocket casts among other podcast sites so thanks for listening and thanks to all the staff and volunteers who make ksquid your community radio station and keep it going and so until next every other sunday sustainability now